Available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello and welcome from me, Peter Walters, uh, to this week's edition of Outlook, which has been recorded on Wednesday, the 20th of September, 2023. In this edition, we'll be hearing about AI, artificial intelligence. What is it? Uh, we're listening to broadcaster Fee Glover on the silly season, getting a look in on television detective Vera and hearing more stories, more fascinating stories about life in early 20th century Coventry. All that plus Dave at the World Blind Games. And of course, there's the usual items of news from the Resource Centre, Sport and your post bag. But we start with a summary of the past week's local news with myself and Elaine. Outlook News. The Department for Work and Pensions is issuing a warning to those set to be part of a huge benefits change. It is stopping six types of benefits in phases round the country and switching people onto universal credit instead. As part of this, people will have to visit their local job centre to ensure that they are still paid. They will be required to verify their identity and accept new commitments which may have changed from what they were asked to do before in order to maintain eligibility. Universal credit will replace child tax credit, housing benefit, income support, income-based job seekers allowance, income-related employment and support allowance and working tax credit. It is being rolled out across the country in phases called Managed Migration. This programme has already been introduced in some parts of the country. The DWP is currently focusing mainly on people who are on tax credits, but says the September rollout will also include a small number of other legacy benefit combinations. A DWP spokesperson said, Do not be alarmed. We alert people three months before they need to move to Universal Credit and follow up with reminder letters and texts. Evidence shows most tax credit claimants have been able to claim Universal Credit without the need for additional support. Extensions can be arranged for those who need more time to make a claim and support is available in local job centres and via a dedicated DWP helpline. Benefits are only ever stopped as a last resort after multiple unsuccessful attempts to engage with claimants. The alert you receive will direct you to specific pages on gov.uk where you can find more information or claim universal credit. It also points you to a dedicated helpline where they can access support to make a claim. The government has said that a claimant will receive reminders during the three-month period if they have not yet claimed universal credit and adds that the migration notice also explains how to request more time if needed. A common action performed by thousands of drivers every day could be banned. Motorists are being warned that there could be some big changes made to parking 
and what they can and can't do. Changes to the highway's code are being considered to boost pedestrian safety. One of these could involve parking on pavements. <laughs> Bans on parking on pavements are already in place in London and Scotland is set to follow. Now ministers are set to see if it should be rolled out across the rest of the country. It's a not uncommon sight to see vehicles propped up on pavements, but some are concerned about the safety of pedestrians when cars park this way, especially if the pavement is obstructed. This is especially challenged, challenging for the visually impaired and parents with pushchairs who need more room on the pavement. A number of options for tackling pavement parking are being looked at by the Department for Transport. Any proposed ban would require new legislation to be put into force. It may prove controversial as some residents have to park their cars on the street. Um, and as an add to that story, as part of a, a campaign on this issue, Guides Dogs for the Blind uh, have a, uh, a petition available to sign. So please sign it. A crackdown on e-bikes, pedal bikes and e-scooters riding through pedestrianised areas of Coventry City Centre is being mooted by council chiefs. An amendment to the Public Space Protection Order to stop people riding these vehicles through areas meant for pedestrians has been tabled. This would allow police and other law enforcement officers to issue fines to riders who flout the law. The council and police have received reports of safety concerns from conventrians and visitors, with people saying they feel unsafe due to the speed of these vehicles, obstructions to public walkways and collisions. A survey which launched last week and runs until October the 9th gives people the chance to have their say on the proposals and on cycling in the city centre. The proposals are also aimed at addressing other issues such as street trading, busking and begging, for which an order was introduced in October 2017 to help reduce antisocial behaviour. Those breaching it could face prosecution and fines up to £100. Cabinet Member for Policying and Equalities, Councillor Abdul Salam Khan, added the amendment was needed due to the increase in the popularity of e-bikes, pedal cyclists and e-scooters in the city. The proposals follow work by West Midlands Police, the Council and the City's Business Improvement District to educate riders about the legal use of e-bikes and to stop dangerous cycling, which includes e-bike food delivery drivers. A vet has issued an urgent warning to dog owners after a pet had to have life-saving surgery when it ate a common vegetable. Roman the Cocker Spaniel stole sweet corn and ate it before anyone could stop him. He needed an emergency trip to the vets where an x-ray found the corn on the cob was solid and lodged in the stomach of the two-year-old dog. It needed surgery to remove. While corn is not toxic to dogs, the vegetable is indigestible and therefore likely to cause a blockage. It can also prevent anything else moving through the stomach, which can prove fatal. <coughs> Vet Jordan Sinclair removed the blockage. Roman was closely monitored for several hours after the operation, before he was discharged to rest at home. Jordan said, Corn on the cob can cause choking in dogs, or, if it's highly, or it is highly likely to cause a blockage, as it passes through the gastric tract if they do manage to swallow it. They will start being sick, and there's a risk the dog could become very ill or even die. 
thankfully Roman's owners acted very quickly, which is really important, and made it much more likely that he went on to make a full recovery. Roman's owner, Daniel Shaw, said, He snatched the cord and swallowed it in one. I feared the worst, but thankfully we live about two minutes from the vets, and they were great with him. Coventry Conservatives have not given up hope of stopping an expanse of green space from being bulldozed for hundreds of homes. Labour-led Coventry City Council gave developers the green light to build 345 houses and a care home at a site in Browns Lane, near countryside often referred to as Count and Wedge, at a planning committee meeting last Thursday. But Councillor Gary Ridley, who has been a long-term opponent of the scheme, says he and the city's Conservative group are not giving up on their fight to save the leafy location from development. We still have one chance to stop this, the Conservative leader said. And that's by the council not selling the land. We have collected a petition with more than 1,300 signatures on it, which has been presented to Jim O'Boyle. It will go through the government services process. It will be up to Labour when they hear it, but we urge them to hear it as soon as possible. Councillor Ridley, the Council's Shadow Policy and Leadership Chief, added, This is Council land. There is nowhere for them to hide if they sell it. This is their decision taken locally. We can still stop this development by not selling the land. The development, which will join Browns Lane to the west of Cowden Wedge Drive in the east, will incorporate a mix of two, three and four bedroom homes, with 25% allocated to affordable housing. The committee meeting heard from opponents of the plan, who said it would have devastating consequences for people living in the area, as well as the local ecosystem. But the committee put the city's dire housing need in front of various concerns about environmental pollution and road safety, approving the scheme by six votes to two. Councillor Ridley said the decision to approve was devastating, but not surprising. It's been on the cards for a long time, since Labour took the site out of the Greenbelt. This is not Greenbelt land, Committee Chair Councillor Harvard said. It is not the Cowden Wedge. It is bordering with Cowden Wedge. It was allocated in 2017 for housing and a lot more than is being proposed here. Ministers will soon have to sort out details of the Prime Minister's planned ban on American XL bully dogs. Rishi Sunak said the dogs will be banned by the end of the year in response to a series of attacks. The decision was quickly backed by campaign groups, the Labour Party, and Baron Baker of Dorking, who put the Dangerous Dogs Act on the statute books more than 30 years ago. It comes after it emerged a man died after being attacked last Thursday by two dogs, suspected to be bully XLs, in Staffordshire. But questions remain about how exactly a ban will be implemented and enforced, with concerns too about the challenge of defining the dog breed given its crossbreed nature. These dogs are dangerous. I want to reassure the public that we will take all necessary steps to keep people safe, Mr Sunak said. He also said that he had ordered ministers to bring together police and experts to define the breed of dog behind these attacks so that they can then be outlawed. The decision was welcomed by campaigners, 
but other groups, including the RSPCA and the Cow Club, said banning American XL bully dogs would not stop attacks. It comes amid suggestions over whether, uh, amid questions, I beg your pardon, over whether an amnesty period could be introduced for owners, with suggestions that this was, would see an outright ban take effect in 2025. This was the approach taken in the past when pit bulls were banned under the Dangerous Dogs Act in the 1990s. Lord Baker said American XL bully dogs should be neutered or destroyed once the ban has come into force, with any permitted to live being muzzled for the entire time. The Tory peer said it should be done almost immediately because this is a very dangerous breed and I do not accept the views of the Kennel Club and the RSPCA that breeds should not be banned. This dog is in fact bred in order to fight and to be aggressive. It's already done enough damage, and the Prime Minister is absolutely right to ban it. Sir Keir Starmer said, there's been a clear case for banning them for a long time. What I say to the government is good, get on with it, and the sooner we can do this, the better. We reported a couple of weeks ago about the controversial 100-foot-plus big wheel, which is set to tower over the city centre for nearly two months. Plans announced by Coventry City Council would see the giant wheel go up in Broadgate. There won't be too long to wait either, as the wheel is set to open to the public from Saturday, November the 18th until Sunday, January the 7th. People would be able to ride on it throughout the day and into the evening. In addition, market stalls selling a range of festive food, drinks and gifts will also be placed in Broadgate and the Upper Precinct. It would run every day from 11am to 10pm, except on Christmas Day. Prices have yet to be announced. Councillor Abdul Salam Khan, Deputy Leader at Coventry City Council, said... We are delighted to announce another magical Christmas offer for the residents of Coventry and visitors to our city. Our popular Christmas markets are set to return alongside the Big Wheel. The Big Wheel is a family-friendly activity that is suitable for all ages and everyone can get involved. Tickets will be available for adults and children and there will be a family ticket which is great value. Officials say the city's Christmas offer is being delivered by Coventry City Council in partnership with Visit Coventry and Coventry Bid. More details about the big wheel, including admission prices, will be announced soon. It looks just like a normal coffee cart that you would see in any city centre. But behind the scenes there is a hidden importance. Mosaic Brew opened three months ago in Warwick Row in Coventry. Partly funded by the Mosaic Church, the project aims to support refugees and migrants while they find their first jobs in Coventry. So far, two Ukrainian people have been working at the stall. At the end of September, more people will be joining to take part in training. Lorena Schott, who works at the coffee stall, came to England as a missionary with her husband. She now works with local churches and partners with refugee centres. Mrs Schott, who's worked with refugees and asylum seekers alongside her husband for seven years, said it's really hard for people who come here to get a head start. Most of these people have a craft, but they cannot work, and we want to empower them to get help. They learn not just barista skills, but essentially life skills, 
such as how to deal with clients and manage money. Mark, 19, works on the stall and came from Ukraine eight and a half months ago to escape the war. He called Mosaic his home church and said, It's really hard here as I don't have anything related to the UK. I'm an electrician by profession, but you need British diplomas and courses which take a lot of time. When asked how learning a new craft helps him emotionally and mentally, he said, I love the challenges and the business, and I have an opportunity to grow as a businessman. Lorena said, our next steps will be to multiply the coffee cart so that we can give even more people jobs. Opera singer Russell Watson, who has survived two brain tumours, has written an exclusive song for worldwide cancer research to be released posthumously to help fund pioneering work into new cures. The Salford-born classical singer, at 56, is the first musician to write an unreleased track into his will, leaving it as a gift charity to help others, overcoming a life-threatening diagnosis just as he did. Watson was told he had a brain tumour in 2006 and was successfully treated before overcoming a second diagnosis a year later. He said, My diagnosis changed everything. All I could think about was how my wife and daughters would survive without me. It was difficult to see beyond my illness at the time, but to be alive and healthy 15 years later is something I'm eternally grateful for. Often when we are writing wills, we think about those closest to us, but a will much like a piece of music, has the power to touch the lives of so many more. I want others to receive the kind of life-saving treatment that I did, to give that gift of time for which I am so grateful every day. Watson's song, billed as a compilation of his most loved songs, was created to remove the taboo around post-life planning and shine a light on how leaving a will can touch the lives of others. Helen Rippon, Chief Executive of the charity Worldwide Cancer Research, said, Discussion around post-life planning can be uncomfortable, but with roughly half of Brits without a written will, it is important we spread the message about how important it is to plan for when that day comes. We're hugely inspired by Russell's story and are delighted to receive such an incredible gift from him to shine a light on our charity and hopefully bring us closer to a day when no life is cut short by cancer. Staff at Coventry University are celebrating after a number of its courses were named in the top ten in the UK. The Guardian University Guide 2024 was published last week. The university's mental health nursing course topped the rankings for the second year running. Another ten subjects retained or gained top ten status. Overall, Coventry University achieved a ranking of 46th in the 2024 guide, which covers all of the UK universities. It moved up five places from last year's ranking of 51st. In the Times and Sunday Times Good University guide, also published last week, Coventry University was ranked 10th in the Midlands. The University of Warwick was ranked the best in the region. Professor John Latham, Coventry University's group's Vice-Chancellor said, Coventry University continues to prove its worth and quality across the board, and we're delighted with the recognition in the Guardian University Guide 2024. 
The subjects at Coventry University ranked in the top 10 of the Guardian University Guide 2024 are Mental Health Nursing, Media and Film Studies, Aerospace Engineering, Health Professions, Physiotherapy, Fashion and Textiles, Journalism, Product Design, Midwifery, Animation and Game Design and Interior Design. A family who printed their boarding passes at home and took them to the airport have been charged £165 by Ryanair after the barcodes wouldn't scan. Damien Lloyd checked in his family a month before the flight and took the passes to the airport. But when the passes wouldn't scan, he was told his family could wait until customer services could help and get another flight three days later or pay £165. Ryanair claims the family had unchecked in before flying and has refused to refund the money. They have instead referred Mr Lloyd to a dispute resolution service. Mr Lloyd, a frequent flyer, said a Ryanair employee at the check-in desk was also confused. He looked on the computer and our names and seat numbers came up but for some reason, the boarding passes weren't scanning. He didn't know why. Because the flight was an early morning departure, Ryanair customer service was not available to investigate. The family was told they could miss their flight and wait for customer services to open or buy new passes. The next flight was three days later, so the family paid £165 to have new boarding passes printed. Mr Ryan said the Ryanair employee told him he would be able to claim the money back. But Ryanair rejected the claim and said it was not a fault at their end. They told Mr Lloyd he had not verified his identity and later changed their minds and said this was incorrect. But then claimed the family had unchecked in the day before the flight. A spokesperson for Ryanair said... The family unchecked themselves on the website on the 22nd of July and ignored the pop-up that warned them they would have to check in again and generate new boarding passes. As they didn't have valid boarding passes, they were correctly charged the airport check-in fee. Mr Lloyd says he did not return to the website after checking in a month before the flight. He has been referred to Dispute Resolution Service Aviation ADR. So be warned, Ryanair like charging for extras. Maths is renowned for being a tricky subject for many people, and this school year five question is proving no, no exception. Many adults have been left shocked after they struggled to answer this exam question. The question asks students to find out exactly how many pages there were in a book might seem like a very simple mathematical equation, but only the most intelligent and logical were able to answer it. The question read, Klein read 30 pages of a book on Monday and one-eighth of the book on Tuesday. He completed the remaining quarter of the book on Wednesday. How many pages are there in the book? Many were left absolutely baffled by the question and came to the realisation that if they were to retake fifth grade maths, they would fail. One person said, and now we can all see why Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader worked as a game show. 
Another added, today I learned I would fail fifth grade maths. While a third added, I always think to myself, people should really be tested with basic skills before they're allowed to go into society. And then I see this and realise I shouldn't go out into society. I'm going to leave a five second gap now so that those who want to can stop this outlook to work out the answer. To continue, not everyone thought the maths problem was too difficult to answer, including a person with a PhD in engineering with a focus on mathematics. The social media user explained that the key to working out the problem is that, that is that because Klein read the last quarter on the Wednesday, he must have read three quarters, which is six eighths, on the previous days. Explaining how he came to an answer, he explained, but he only read one eight on Tuesday, so he rest, must have read the other five eighths on Monday. We're told he read 30 pages on Monday. We know he read five eighths of the book on Monday, so 30 pages equal five eighths of the book. So how much is an eighth of the book? 30 pages is 5 eighths. 30 pages divided by 5 is 6 pages. So a unit of 6 pages is 1 eighth of the book. The book therefore is 8 units of 6 pages. 8 times 6, 48 pages long. How did you do? And finally, a by-election is set to play, take place in Earlston on Thursday, October the 26th. The Earlston seat has become vacant after Councillor Becky Gittens resigned earlier this month. The notice of election will be published tomorrow, September the 21st, with candidates able to submit nominations until 4pm on Friday of next week, September the 29th. Outlook News Thanks to Elaine for helping me out with the uh, news. Um, lighting up times this week. Sunrise is seven minutes before 7am uh, and sunset is seven minutes after 7pm. Um, we're moving on now to the resource news this week. Um, Hugh, I believe, is still not well, so here is Joe. Yes, hello everybody. Hello Pete. Um, I'm afraid not. Hugh is... Definitely still not very well at all. He's been off with COVID uh, since last week, having caught it from his partner, uh, husband, I should say. And um, he's better than he was, uh, so things are going in the right direction. But he definitely doesn't sound his usual energetic self. And I think the sofa is his favourite place right now. (laughs) So, Hugh, we wish you well. Get better soon, but don't rush back too early. Mm. And things are all right at base, and we look forward to seeing you when you're properly fit and well. So the news from the centre this week. Um, There's a couple of things just to say. First of all, we drew the raffle. We were selling raffle tickets like they were going out of fashion in the end, and we've done quite well, I think. Probably made, I don't know exactly, around about £900, I think, which is really, really good. And... uh, Whilst I was off on my week off last week, I know that Hugh did the draw. Uh, If you are a prize winner or somebody in your family, friend is a prize winner, and you haven't heard from us yet, bear with us. 
because Hugh has put the prize information somewhere. I don't know where it is. <laughs> so we will sort that out next week if you haven't heard from us already. Um, so, yeah. Um, the next thing to mention, I think, um, this morning, in fact, the some of you may be up earlier than me and have heard the uh, programme on Coventry Warwickshire Radio this morning uh, with Phil Upton. They have been covering the uh, Dive Dogs campaign about pavement parking, uh, which we, of course, have a very keen interest in. There is still a petition nationally they're asking people to sign. So if you physically can access that online, please go in and have a look and sign your name if you wish to. They're trying to do something to get legislation in place about where people can park and not blocking pavements. And clearly for visually impaired people, blind people, and many people who have other disabilities or use mobility mm, scooters, it's a big issue. It's a very big issue. And even those of us who are fit and well, it's a, a mm. nuisance, isn't it? Mm. It's impolite. Yes, so um, if you are someone that can get in and sign online, then please do. Um, you probably will find the links via the Guide Dogs website. If you need help to do that and you'd like to sign it, uh, please ask us. We would be happy to help you. And certainly people at our IT sessions can do that with a bit of assistance if they want to do it. Uh, we'll keep you posted on that campaign because we think it's really important. Um, the walking group which usually runs on a Wednesday morning from the centre. That's been cancelled this morning because the weather is getting really bad. <laughs> uh, I think it's just as well we cancelled this morning, isn't it? Autumnal, is it called? It's call it. getting dark and autumnal for sure. So The end of a hurricane, I think. Yeah. Um, so we, we will have to sort of just keep an eye on the weather forecast. So those of you that enjoy the walking group will try and give you some advance notice about whether it's running on a Wednesday or not. Um, and Chris is away on holiday at the moment, as you know, uh, Chris and Claire. So we'll see how we get on. Paul Norman is organising it whilst Chris is away. If the weather is going to be really good, we'll try and run it. But if there's any doubt or it looks bad, we will let you know it's cancelled. Um, two other things I'd like to mention. One is a big welcome to some new volunteer drivers. Hurrah! We've been campaigning hard. And what seems to have worked really well... I think it was Martin Clark's bright idea to put one of our volunteer needed posters <laughs> in the men's toilets yeah. at the Oak Pub mm. in Earlsden. And that seems to have provoked quite a positive response. So we've had several new drivers recently who are all finding their feet a little bit. Uh, so I'd like to welcome Mick, Graham and Anthony. And Harry has also joined not long ago. He's now on holiday himself, but he's been a new driver too. So... Be patient with them. Let them know what they're doing well as well as what you need them to do for you and give them any tips you think would be useful. And um, I think they're all going to find their way around very well. So thank you to all of those drivers. And the last thing I'd like to mention, which is a big thing, is the Globals Make Some Noise fundraising campaign. I've been mentioning this on and off. And if you remember, I managed to... Uh, apply and secure from their campaign a £30,000 grant which will pay for the whole of next year's IT sessions and devices sessions for the whole year and that's pretty good I'm pretty pleased about that. Uh, Global Media is a massive media company and it's behind most of the London and some of the national radio stations. 
Heart FM being one example, London LBC uh, and a whole host, Classic FM, a whole host of other radio and media platforms. So they are enormous and they run a fundraising campaign every year with a lot of high profile media publicity stars. So they have things on telly, they have things on the, on the airwaves mostly. And 5th of October is going to be their big campaign day. So if you are a radio listener on any of the main Global's channels, you will hear them say Global's Media quite regularly. You'll know you're on that sort of channel. And on the 5th of October, you should hear quite a lot of activity about this fundraising campaign. They're going to raise as much money as they can. And what they like to do is is especially support local smaller charities, which is a very big blessing for us. So we are one of 40 charities being supported this year. And on the 6th of October, I think, uh, we're just sorting out the details, but we're planning, um, we're talking to Heart FM Midlands, and they, they will be interviewing Hugh, uh, and he will be going out on Heart FM Midlands, I think, on the 6th of October. So we'll tell you more when we know the exact dates and times. So listen out for all of that, and we'll keep you posted on all the activities that are going on. So I think that's all I have to say this week. I'd just like to say hi, everybody, and um, nice. hope to see you again soon. I really hope that Hugh will be back in the chair next week, <laughs> for my sake as much as his. Um, but nice to talk to you all in the meanwhile. Thank you so much, Joe, um, and congratulations on getting that funding. Thank you. Terrific news. And next, as usual, it's time for Sarah to bring us this week's sports report. Outlook Sport. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to this week's sport from Sarah. Right, I'll start off with the round ball, the football one. Coventry City on Friday night travelled up north to Hull and came away with a 1-1 draw. Now, we took the lead partway through the first half through a goal by one of our defenders, Joe Latibodier. But they scored ooh, about three minutes from the end. So just as we thought we might be coming away with the three points, we were pegged back to one. But one point's better than none. Now, a word about Latibodier and his colleague in our squad, who was also playing on Friday, Casey Palmer. They both are Jamaican internationals and had been playing in Jamaica in two internationals as late as early Wednesday morning our time. They must have jumped on a plane almost straight after, flown back, landed back here about Thursday morning. Fortunately, they did go straight up north to Hull. And then Latibodier played the entire match. Cool. Jet lag. What jet lag? Now, moving down a few gears, I'm afraid to report 
that Coventry City, who haven't played yet in the FA Cup, are now the only local side left in the FA Cup. For Leamington travelled to Boston United and were thumped 4-0. Oh well, Leamington, you did well to get this far. Meanwhile, on Wednesday, Stratford travelled to Stamford and came away with this 4-2 victory on what their Facebook described as a windy, rain-swept Wednesday evening. <sighs> hey boys, if you want to play football, you get what comes. Now, on the same evening, Nuneaton travelled to Hitchin Town. I don't have a weather update on that one, but Nuneaton lost 3-0. So a bit of a mixed bag, really, for our local round ball sides. Now, the ovoid ball. Another, though quietly a bit muted, drum roll of applause for our Coventry Rugby Club, who this time were in the second round of the Premier Cup and travelled away to Premier side Harlequins. Mm-hmm. Another Premier side. Now, I'll give you the result before I give you the build-up. They came away with a 21-all draw, which is very credible against a Premier club with a lot of internationals. In fact, partway through the second half, Coventry were leading all 21-14, but they just couldn't hang on. And Quinn's got a try and converted two minutes before full time. But nevertheless, our lads did hold on and didn't sustain any further points against. So there we were, 21 all. Now, next Saturday is the third round of the Premier Club, but it's away. And this week, Cov will travel to Hartbrook University. No, I've never heard of them. Who are another championship side, but it's still in this Premier Cup. So, while we're on the ovoid ball, let's turn to the World Cup going on in Paris, well, in France. Well done to Ireland, who beat Tonga, and to Wales, my second team, who beat Portugal. And, of course, last night to England, who beat Japan, 34 points to 12 and that contained four tries so they got an extra bonus point so now after two matches England are sitting at the top of their group on nine points and short of an absolute disaster next week are heading into the quarter-finals so, well done, England. 
after all the doubting Thomases, and I have to admit, I was one of them. Now, sticking with, with spherical objects, but going down a few sizes to tennis. Last weekend saw the Men's Davis Cup. Now, the format has obviously changed since the days when I was familiar with it, because Great Britain were playing in a qualifying match, but so they can go straight in to the final eight. But it wasn't just a qualifying match, it was a round robin between four countries with the top two going through. So our opponents were Australia, sorry, <clears throat> France and Switzerland. And you know what? We beat the lot of them. Even the Aussies. Now, last night, which was Sunday, saw the France match. And to say it was nerve-wracking, oh gosh. It finished, the two singles matches were played first, followed by the doubles. And our doubles partnership was Dan Evans, who'd played earlier that day in a three-set singles, and Neil Skupski. And it, Skupski and Evans lost the first set, not a good start. And then I looked, kept looking at my iPad because I got the rugby on, ten, on telly. Um, and it kept saying things like, Evans and Skupski trail. And I was thinking, oh, we've come this far. But, oh no, no, in the final round, we won. So well done to the British team of five. And the captain, Leon Smith, used all five players at least once. So we saw Andy Murray, who you might have seen on the news, played on the day of his grandma's funeral and he was very upset about it. But his dad had told him it's what his gran would have wanted. Dan Evans, who really earned his, well, I would say his ticket, but the games were only in Manchester. Cameron Norrie, Jack Draper, and for the doubles and all of the doubles matches, Neil Skupski. So well done, lads, you did us proud. And onwards and upwards now into the final eight. Now, going down even smaller spherical balls, and much harder ones this time, golf. I'm just giving you advance notice, and I'll say far more about it next week. The Ryder Cup. The biennial competition played between the United States and Europe. It's the year and it's being played on the, from the 29th of September to the 30th of October. And the great thing is Europe is staging it so it's in our time. Well, almost. It's from the eternal city of Rome. Very nice. 
Um, so it's pretty much in our time scale, but we don't have to get up at silly o'clock or stay up till silly o'clock in the morning. Now, I have to say, if you're not really into golf, do watch a little bit of the Ryder Cup if they show the highlights. It really is like no other golfing competition. The crowd gets so involved. And as you can probably imagine, the Americans are hollering and cheering. So there's none of this shh. Oh, no. And they're all in their national costumes or their team's colours. It really is very exciting. And I want to bring you an Anne finally, which I happened to see on the BBC website. It's sort of well done and commiserations and farewell to Sir Ramon Farah, who, who has hung up his spikes after many years of top flight athletics for Great Britain by finishing fourth in the Great North Run. Well done, Mo, and you really will be missed. Who else are we going to have medals from, guaranteed? Oh, well, it comes to us all, and he is 40, so I have to say... I don't begrudge him a few later mornings lying in bed rather than going a 10-mile run. Right, that has been your sport. Bye, folks. Sport generally, both professional and amateur, must surely be the most popular of all human activities throughout the world. Now is the time to move to your spot in Outlook. Postback with Dave. This is Postback. discussion. Hello and welcome to your postbag. I'm trying to compile your postbag spot early as I'm going to Landudno to visit Sheila's old school friend Elaine and her husband Doug. You may remember hearing them in the Outlook on Life spot. So if I don't get your message before I go, I will put it out next week. A big thank you to Judith Misserton for inviting me on the Showerbang Mystery Tour with the Macula Society, of which she is in charge of. It was wonderful, full of adventure, drama and laughs. The Macula Society meets on the third Tuesday of the month at Bonds Hospital Flats, Hill Street, Coventry, between 10.30am and 12.30. The question was, will the old Harrison coach make it up the hill without us having to get out and push? <laughs> it was wonderful, and it was great to meet William as well, uh, because he was telling me some fascinating stories. And I asked you recently what your favourite radio stations are. Graham Whale tells you of one in particular that he listens to in the small hours of the morning. Um, yes, well, if I wake up in the early hours of the morning, I'm inclined to switch Hills FM on. They play continuous music throughout the day, actually, if there's no programming. And the style of the music can 
alters every hour. So you might switch on and hear something not very pleasant. But if you switch on an hour later, you might, might hear something more pleasant. Uh, I'm finding between uh, 2 and 3 on a Wednesday morning quite pleasant to listen to. Um, there's an hour of rock and roll between 4 and 5 on a Friday morning. Um, used to be 3 and 4 on a Wednesday, but now it's five, 4 and 5 on a Friday. And it's worth listening, as I say. Uh, it's uh, 98.6 FM, and um, you can listen to it on the Internet, but you're not going to have likely to access to a computer when you're in bed, are you? And out of all the uh, uh, community stations in the Coventry area, I think Hills FM is the only one which is worth listening to. Thank you, Graham. Hills FM is an excellent radio station. Graham and I once appeared on Sweet Pea's Irish programme. Graham had written a song called Home of Belfast, based on all the cheap flights we'd been on to Ireland, including Sheila. Sheila and I treated me to a recording session in the home studio of the Christians guitarist and musical arranger Joey Ankra. It took six hours of putting it together in the studio which incidentally has been the time spent at home and also Christine's home in the studio putting many of my reports together. So I hope you listen to them. There's an excerpt here from Home of Belfast. I'm sailing cross to Ireland to a place called Belfast They used to build ships there But not anymore There's a wall divides our city Someday we'll live in peace One day we will join hands In our home of Belfast responded by telling you of her favourite radio stations. I listen to uh, the great, uh, Greatest Hits radio now. Uh, we have Cambrose, Cambrose just joined. Uh, Simon, I always have Simon Mayer on. Simon, uh, he does what, uh, an album uh, on Sunday. And then of course uh, over to Johnny Walker on radio too. And that's what I listen to. Uh, Thank you, Tina. I often listen to Johnny Walker with Sounds of the 70s on a Sunday afternoon. 
The show seems to have been going on longer than the 70s, a bit like Dad's Army. The series went on longer than the war. And now a report from Julia, where she says, Happy birthday, Michael! Michael lives in the same place as me, and we often chat about the world when we meet in the lounge. We discuss politics, religion, and generally take the mickey out of my friend John. Anyway, Michael had a birthday. Well, everybody does, don't they? On his birthday, I gathered up the gang, and off we all went to Philongley. There is a great restaurant there, and it's called the Quicken Tree, whatever that is. We went in Wendy the Warden's car, and Mary and Sally, and eight more came. But not my friend John, because he's too fat. Michael was 70, but he didn't look a day over 17. Not to me, anyway. I had crispy chicken, but only one. And it was spicy, and I had chips, too. Then I had pudding in a big, tall glass. It had apple, ginger crunch, ice cream, cream, and a wafer. My friend John would have loved it. But that wasn't enough for me. I helped Michael eat his birthday cake after that. I like Michael very much, but I don't know whether he's married. He wouldn't tell me. I would like to go to the Quicken Tree for my birthday if my friend John would take me, but that won't be until December. Love, Julia. So, I think it's December the 13th. Anyway, so what's Edwina doing? Hopefully relaxing in a nice basket chair, perhaps in a sun lounge or the garden. Hopefully. Here she is. Tell you about basket work. The other thing that's natural with the brand is the fact that the natural materials of wood and um, basket work is back. That is something that was very much in the 70s. It's wonderful to see some of the wonderful things that have been made. And the basket work is out of this world. We're talking about bamboo, uh, willow, different woods that can be used and shaped. Have you been to a garden centre lately and seen what the latest garden sheets are? I wonder. I have. I have noticed the beautiful new types of seats. A swing sheet or one that is fixed. And they're wonderful. I saw the first one which was a single seat rigid. So of course I sat on the plump pillows to feel how comfortable it was. It was lovely. But the beauty of it was that it was interweaved with bamboo and willow. And the sides were solid with this beautiful handiwork and arched as a roof over you as you sit down. And the back is complete from the top to the bottom so that you are protected in a little sort of cabin of beautiful handiwork. That is the latest. But also, 
fancy design with swinging seats too. So you can pick a single swing or double swing. They're different sizes and different designs. I looked at the rigid one because of course with the line now I didn't fancy trying to swing into a swinging seat. But the rigid one were single and double and settee taking three or four people with all this beautiful basket work. The surprise of my life when I was told by my carer they are actually plastic. They look real. They feel the real thing because I felt the pattern and the wood and they're plastic. So that means they're weatherproof. So all you have to do is remove the cushion and they're dry for the winter or wet weather. They're a lovely new invention and they're selling like hotcakes. So someone will probably spy one and tell you about it. You'll enjoy sitting on it. A very plump cushion. Take care, everybody. Bye. Thank you, Edwina. Is it right that many blind people did basket work in schools and later in life too? Also, they were taught to tune pianos as they were considered to have a sensitive ear. And let us know about any creative talents you have, any hobbies, groups you belong to. And finally, Graham Whale talks about the Resource Centre's plan to have a list of recommended tradespeople, recommended by people including yourself. Yes, I do think the idea of a uh, uh, trusty trade list um, organised by the Resource Centre would be a good idea. I used to use Age Concerns Trusted Trade Scheme until they closed it when COVID hit us because the people who um, manned the desk uh, were orderly and advised not to go out. They recommended um, ringing a a Birmingham company. It was a free phone number, actually. The problem is all the traders they've got are all based in Birmingham. I mean, I've had a couple of jobs done, uh, a job on a window lock in which the person had to come all the way over from Dudley, and, of course, that's reflected in the price they charge you. So it's not really satisfactory. So I would would welcome uh, a trusted trade scheme, uh, whoever it's run by, actually. (laughs) I had a problem... Uh, with a gardener earlier in the year at least my gardener left because he'd taken up driving instructions and you just can't get a gardener in June I rang 12 different gardeners they all either told me outright which they couldn't take any more work on or in a couple of cases I had to leave a message which they didn't come back to in the end I did find somebody but I do think they are charging me way over the top so when things have quietened down gardening-wise, after Christmas, say, I will revisit the problem of finding a gardener. 
Thank you, Graham. And if you have a tradesperson, including a gardener, you recommend please give their name and contact details to the resource centre. I had a list of tradespeople who wouldn't take the blind to the cleaners, and I ran it for 17 years, until the mum of an Outlook broadcaster had a job she wasn't happy with, and the list came to an end. So please pass on your recommendations to the Resource Centre. And thank you for your messages this week. Tell us what you did during the summer. Did you go on holiday? How did you get on? Give us a ring on 02476 717 522 and press 5 for Coventry Talking Newspaper and leave a message. Send us a letter, either written by you or someone on your behalf. Send me an email to davidmonks at hotmail.com or you could ring me up and leave a message if I'm not in on 02476 Five nine eight four eight four. Okay, thank you. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. That was your postbag for this week with Dave. We continue with more post-war memories associated with the Charterhouse, read by Margaret. Memory 6, Dr John Plumley. In the 12 years since it was founded, Charterhouse Residents Association has at times boasted up to 300 members drawn from as far afield as China and Australia. It's a testament to the lure of one of Coventry's most important medieval survivors, and it's a tribute to retired academic Dr John Plumley and his partner Mandy, who have led the association from the beginning. As local residents, they were horrified to hear that the City Council planned to sell off Charter House once Tile Hill College had no further use for it. And with fellow founder Paul Maddox, a campaigner and activist, who went on to chair the Coventry Society, they sailed into battle to try and save the building for the citizens of Coventry, as its last private owner, Colonel William Wiley, had wanted. Persuading councillors to change their minds and ensuring that Ian Harabin, who shared their vision, would be the preferred developer, was just the start. Over the years, John and Mandy spent much of their time at Charterhouse, hosting events researching its history and trying to raise its profile as a missing piece in the jigsaw of Coventry's heritage. John became a familiar figure, guiding visitors round dressed as a Carthusian prior, and as a former university lecturer in computers, who'd also contributed papers on esophagus cancer to the British Medical Journal, he had a thirst for knowledge, that has helped fill in some of the gaps in our knowledge of Charterhouse's fascinating past. As the huge project to restore it nears completion, the couple can reflect on what they have helped to achieve. I don't believe in ghosts, says Dr John, but I do believe that the spirits of people from the past can sometimes be felt, and I feel that here, it's a place of peace. Mandy's thoughts turn to those who will be using it in the future. 
I'm very pleased because children in Coventry will get to know about it and it is part of their history, she says. Something so important to Coventry that nobody knew about is being brought back into the light and we've been part of that. Over the last year or so, I'm sure you've been aware of more and more talk of AI, artificial intelligence. But what is it? How's it going to help our lives? And are there any negative aspects? And should the pace of its development be slowed down? Nigel's been investigating and came across this article, which attempts to explain it in Good Housekeeping magazine. As co-presenter of the BBC's technology show, Click, I've seen how artificial intelligence has rapidly developed. Even the very definition of AI can be a source of debate, but put simply, it's a computer's ability to do a task that usually needs human intelligence. And it's been quietly hiding in our everyday lives in different ways for years. From the moment your smartphone recognises your face in the morning, to voice assistants such as Alexa and Siri, right up until your log until you log into your favourite streaming service for streaming entertainment. It's embedded in so much of what we do, yet most of us hadn't been thinking about it. That was until the emergence of ChatGPT, an AI chatbot that seems to change everything. The platform writes like a human based on what we've already asked it to create. It doesn't actually know anything, it's working on the statistical probability of what word is likely to follow another, a bit like a supercharged predictive text. But the results can be convincing. At the back end of 2022, it took the world by storm, both amazing and terrifying us, and the AI debate went mainstream. Some feared development was spiralling out of control, and that humans could lose a superior place in the world. Will AI take over, as news headlines seem to predict? Well, first, we'd have to let it. It's not born with intention, it's the creation of humans, drawing on data produced by us. But many people are unsurprisingly jolted by the idea that it could try to influence how we think, encourage our, cho our choices, and even make decisions for us. It's already been doing a lot of this, and it's not always a bad thing. But it somehow seems bigger and scarier now we've come to face or finger to keyboard with artificial intelligence, which had maybe seemed like a mystical concept. Algorithms didn't excite people before, but it was a platform that could write a good email that got everyone in a frenzy. And that's probably because we could have to go and find out for ourselves that it can create something that seemed like it was written by a living, breathing human. The positive power of algorithms, crunching enormous quantities of healthcare data to make findings that no human ever could, is incredible. And it's already trying to tell us what it thinks we might like when cur curating our social media feeds, personalising adverts, not that I'm convinced it gets those right a lot of the time, or suggesting what music we might like. The question of AI ethics fascinates me. Just because a machine can do something doesn't mean it should. During COVID-19, I didn't take up knitting or get baking. I attended an online AI ethics course run by the London School of Economics. 
Since then, I've enjoyed events at the University of Oxford's Institute for Ethics in AI, and I've made a variety of content for television and radio about AI. I was keen to open up the conversation, to start making content that would allow people to understand the questions at play and the way AI would be regulated and become part of our life's needs to be ethical, sensible, safe and productive. It's not simple, of course. There are always trade-offs. You can have self-driving cars moving around, barely ever hurting people. But if they're travelling at five miles an hour, they could be no use to anyone. So it's about deciding where we set the bar on each and every topic. One of the biggest talking points has been the issue of jobs, with widespread concern that AI could start taking over roles that are done by people and rob them of their livelihoods. Dr. Mahiri Aitken, an ethics fellow at the Alan Turing Institute, offers some reassurance on that front, explaining, AI will be used to automate an increasing number of tasks, but for the most part, it will be tasks not all jobs. It can lead to lots of improvements in efficiency that can support or complement human decision-making or support human judgment, but AI has no creative thinking. So we always need it to be complementing humans rather than replacing humans. Some legal work customers, service jobs and various forms of admin will inevitably become automated. Even some coding and creative jobs may be thrust into doubt. But in most cases, humans still need to be in the loop. AI can't think or behave like us. It has no intentions, no life experience another than yours of human thought. Nigel will conclude that rather complicated story next week. Many of you will be familiar with Vera Stanhope, the North Country detective in the ser- television series Vera. She was created by author Anne Cleves, who has written more than 35 critically acclaimed books, and this article about her was written by Sam Baker in the Daily Mail, and is read by Sheila. Behind the door of an unassuming 1930s semi in Whitley Bay lived the woman responsible for two of TV's biggest crime dramas. This is the home of Anne Cleves, the creator of Shetland, now in its eighth series, and Vera, starring Brenda Brethin, and now on season 13. Cleves is an unlikely criminal mastermind. A 68-year-old grandmother of seven, she's written 37 books, sold 8 million copies and been translated into 20 languages, and that's without the TV success. Yet she still lives in the three-bedroom home she bought with her ornithologist husband Tim in 2006. Cleves already has the kettle on when I arrive and leads me to the kitchen table that doubles as her desk, because it's warm, she says. It's got the arga and it's quiet. Plus, I love sitting here making stuff up. The room is a testament to her twin loves, family and writing. Photos of her family cover the shelves, and her husband's ornithology books are mixed with her crime novels and awards. His death in 2017 from a heart attack coincided with the last of the Shetland books. It was a weird coincidence, she said. I'd already decided Wildfire would be the last, and I was glad I did. It was the end of an era for me and Shetland. I can't help observing that lots of people with her success might have moved somewhere flashier. What would I want with that on my own, she says. I've got lovely neighbours. 
Cleves has the respect for money that comes from having spent much of your life without it. If money has been tight and suddenly you can go to the supermarket and not look at the prices, that's huge. Although she has made one concession to success, after Tim died, I found it difficult to come into this house. I went away and bought a cottage in the Northumberland Hills. I fell in love with it. When I came back here, I got out the ordnance survey map, and Tim had put a pencil mark around the square where the cottage was. He'd done a bird survey there. It felt like he was saying, it's all right. Tim's work with the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds brought the couple to the northeast in the early 1980s with their daughters Sarah and Ruth. Cleves considered herself a northeasterner by choice and the whole family still lived in the area. Born in Herefordshire and raised in North Devon, Cleves had never lived anywhere bigger than Barnstaple until a year out took her to London in 1972 where she worked for Camden Social Services looking after a family of children whose mum had left. It's the only time she's lived in the city and she hated it. From there she studied literature at Sussex University but dropped out. It was very trendy, I didn't fit in. Posh people sitting around drinking wine and talking about poetry wasn't for me. She left Sussex in 1976 after a chance meeting in a pub with a guy who was off to work at the Feral Bird Observatory in Scotland. It inspired her to go there too as an assistant cook. I don't know cooking, knew nothing about birds. It was an escape, she said, but she fell for it instantly. It's a pretty island and it was spring. There were wild flowers and puffins on the cliffs. She met Tim that autumn when he went to Feral to work as an ornithologist. A year later, riding on the back of a hay cart, he proposed, and the couple were wed in 1977. Tim's job meant they often lived in remote places, but perhaps none so much as Hilba, an island near Liverpool only accessed by foot at low tide, where they went after they were married. We were the only people on the island with no mains water or electricity, but it was only a couple of miles out, so I commuted by waiting for low tide and walking across. I spent half the time on the island where it was just us and the birds, and the other half on some of Merseyside's most dangerous council estates. Three years later, Tim went out to ring some wading birds, but the tide was going out and it was, it was caught and it sank his canoe. He was swept out into the estuary towards the Irish Sea. They were lucky somebody else happened to be on the island, contacted the Coast Guard and got hold of the inshore lifeboat. The event inspired the opening scenes of her latest book, The Raging Storm, which is dedicated to the RNLI. It's also arguably responsible for her being a writer. Right after the accident, I got pregnant, she recalls, and I thought, I can't be doing with leaving Tim on his own here. I can't trust him. So I gave up work and stayed on the island through the pregnancy, and that's when I started writing. I started off thinking I'd write great literature, and then about halfway through I thought, would anybody actually want to read this? Probably not. So turned to crime. There are no guns or serial killers in her novels. People and what makes them tick are what interests her. Murders are often banal, she explains. I met killers when I was a probation officer, and they're usually boring, ineffectual men who, for instance, killed their wife because she got on their nerves when they were drunk. Few are planned in advance. It took 20 years and 20 books for Cleves to break through, and during that time a lot happened. After their daughters were born and the family moved to the northeast, Tim was diagnosed with bipolar disorder that saw him hospitalised in the mid-1980s. 
He'd had depression before, she said, but he got real stress at work and that's when he got it. Tim's illness came after her own diagnosis of breast cancer in her mid-30s. She has been in remission for decades. While the children were growing up and throughout her own and Tim's illnesses, Cleves did odd jobs to earn cash, such as running the village playgroup and youth club. Alongside work, she'd get up early and write a bit every morning to keep sane. She wrote and wrote, earning tiny advances until, in 2006, she published Raven Black, the first in her Shetland series featuring detective Jimmy Perez. It won the Crime Writers Association Gold Dagger Award with a prize of £20,000. Not long after that, Vera was commissioned by ITV. For the first time, the couple could afford to buy their own place. Tim took early retirement and I started writing full-time, she recalls. It was a big risk. A big risk with an even bigger payoff. This July, Cleves was awarded the Outstanding Contribution Award at Harrogate Crime Writing Festival. It's a fitting testament to a woman whose creations have dominated our lives for more than a decade, but I'm sure Cleves has taken it all in her stride. I've watched many of the Vera episodes, and I'm always intrigued by the storylines and Vera's detective work. Alan now continues his fascinating stories about life in our city at the turn of the 20th century, in hurdy-gurdy days. In the next court, our Grace had a little friend called Nellie Brooks and sometimes used to go round and play with her. Nellie was the eldest of seven children. Their house was even worse than ours. Their mother seemed to have lost interest completely. The house and children were dirty, and she always seemed to be bending over the hot fire, either cooking or washing. She cooked enormous quantities of spuds in their jackets in a huge iron saucepan, which she used to lift onto the table. The spuds were ladled out two or three at a time onto the eleven enamel plates, which never seemed to have been washed. They were nearly raw, as there never seemed to be a time to wait for them to cook properly, as the children were always hungry. Spuds seemed to be their only food, as they couldn't afford meat or fish. They never sat down, there simply wasn't room, so they all stood around the table making a terrible din. Their door always seemed to be open, even in winter, as the children used to run in and out at all hours of the day. Other people's children, as well as the floor, was as dirty as the road outside. Grace would go in and stand by Nellie at the table, sticking a fork into a spud in the iron saucepan standing in the middle of the table. Mrs. Brooks was a frail-looking woman, always coughing, doubled up from the everlasting bending over the fire and the dolly tub, which stood in one corner. The water in the tub was filthy dirty and seemed to be used over and over again because Mrs. Brooks hadn't got the strength to keep carrying the water from the tap outside in the yard. There was always washing festooned across the room, like ours, on lines of string dripping all over the floor even worse than ours, as they had no mangle, like us, such as it was, and Mrs. Brooks couldn't wring very tightly. She must have been very pretty, our ma'am used to say, before they had all those children, and before her husband took nearly all his wages to the pub and beat her, if his dinner wasn't ready when he came home. Her hair was a lovely chestnut brown colour, and she had lovely brown eyes. Nellie had inherited her mother's colouring. Nellie's clothes were always in rags, and she hardly ever had boots on, even in winter. She always had a running nose. Candles, the other kids called it. 
Her neck was covered in tiny red spots caused by fleas and bugs, and she was continually scratching her body and head. All the other children were like that too in the house, always scratching like monkeys. Although Grace was only turned five, she was puzzled as to where all those children kept coming from, because they were so poor, and of course she was too young to understand. One day, when Mum was combing her hair for school, she saw something moving. Hold still, will yet? cried Mam, and kept parting her hair looking, and looking. Oh, I'll be late, let me go. I'll get the cane, cried Grace. All right, go on then, but don't get playing with that Nettie Brooks. She's dirty and you're catching dicks off her. What's the use of trying to keep your hair clean if you'll play weir? That's where we're going to get all the fleas from as well, from their house. Well, she can't help it, ma'am, said Grace. But if I catch her go in there again, I'll give you a backside of tanning, that I will, said ma'am. Grace still played with Nellie, of course, as she didn't like to tell her what ma'am had said, but only outside in the yard. Until one day, Nellie's mother called her to come in and have her dinner. You can come in with me, said Nellie to Grace. But when they got to the door, Grace remembered what ma'am had said about tanning if she went into the house, so she stood outside the door. "'Come in, can't you?' shouted Nellie's mother. "'What you standing there for? What's the matter?' All of a sudden. "'Come on,' she went on. "'You've been here before.' But Grace stood still on the step, hanging her head and muttering something about I can't. "'Why can't you?' yelled Mrs. Brooks, and Grace started to cry. "'Oh, come in and stop blubbering,' said Mrs. Brooks. "'I, I can't tell you,' sobbed Grace. My mum says I'll have a tannin on me, backside, if I come inside your house again, cos your house is dirty and you've got lots of fleas and bugs as well as dicks what move in your ear. I'm catching em off you, you know. Mrs. Brooks stood staring at Grace, flabbergasted, trembling from head to foot. At last she found a voice and said, What's that you say? Our house is dirty. Oh, your mum said that, did she? Where's me hat and coat? Dinner or no dinner, I'll give you a piece of my mind, you know. Poor Grace was still crying, and was now frightened out of her wits. She didn't know you should never say things like that to people's faces, only behind their backs. Mrs. Brooks rushed out of the house, down the yard, and ran to our court. She banged on the door, and Ma'am went, all unsuspecting, to answer. As soon as she opened it, Mrs. Brooks, all agitated and excited, wringing her hands, started yelling and swearing. "'What the hell do you mean by saying my kids and house is dirty, you cheeky bitch? Who do you think you are? Let me tell you, we're as clean as what you are, and I'll see Nelly don't play with your kids again. Don't bother! Or as most puns at our table on we are kids, all the time taking your coat off and rolling up her sleeves. "'What are you talking about?' says our man, all red and shaking as by now there was a crowd behind Mrs. Brooks, all listening and waiting for a fight. "'Our Grace told you I said that? <sighs> Wait till I get older, I'll wallop her backside for her.' "'I know. Where is she?' Looking up and down the yard. "'Telling fibs like that.' Mrs. Brooks just didn't know what to say now, and thought perhaps the kid was making it up, and after a minute or two she started rolling her sleeves down, but swearing as she went and shouting, Uh, she must have got it from somewhere. Don't you worry, I'll find out. Shaking her fist at ma'am. Ma'am shut the door quickly, and stood for a minute, with her back to it, after locking it, saying to herself, Good Lord, that was a near thing. 
You wait till our Grace comes home. I'll turn her backside for repeating what I said. She's old enough to know better. Poor Grace was only over the wall and heard all this rowing and shouting. She was crying to herself and ran behind the brewery trays to hide until it was dark. But she was very frightened, cold and hungry. And after a while she thought she had better go home and face our man, who must have calmed down by now. So she crept up the yard and listened outside the door. But there was no sound coming from inside, and no light either. Mum must have gone to look for her, she thought. She opened the door very quietly and slowly went in. Then she screamed as she was pulled further into the room, with blows on her head and shoulders. Mam had been waiting behind the door, knowing Grace would come home when it got dark. She was in such a temper that she shook poor Grace, thumped her and ran up her stairs to bed, hitting her legs and backside with a cane as she went. Grace couldn't speak and was sobbing bitterly. When I went to bed, she was still crying, and I said, Never mind, Grace, don't cry. But all she could say between her sobs was, Well, ma'am did say that. They were dirty. She did say that. She did. Why did she tell Mrs. Brooks she didn't? She was telling fibs, not me. Why did she hit me like that? Poor Grace. It is hard to understand the grown-up world of hypocrisy when you were a child. Fee Glover is a radio and television broadcaster, but also writes some columns in magazines. In this one, from Good Housekeeping, which she calls The Silly Season, she has her say about some odd things in the news this year. This is read by Nigel. It can seem as if the silly season of news is with us all the time in this world of constant connectivity. In days of yore, you'd have to wait until summer months to get your fix of Face of Gary Lineker appears on Loaf of Bread or Man Marries Marrow in Ancient Vegetable Ceremony. But now the matrix of what makes a fine silly season story has been distorted by daft reality and you hardly notice the craziness in headlines such as Cage Fight Between Twitter Boss Elon Musk and Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg is called off. But we're occasionally rewarded with a proper story, deserving of silly season status. And I'd like to congratulate the summer of 2023 in giving us one of the finest. The peacocks of Pinecrest are being offered vasectomies. This is golden. It's got everything. It seems dark, but it's real. It's not in home news, so it's got an exotic whiff of the international about it. It can be accompanied by a fabulous picture of a peacock at its strutting best, and most importantly, no one dies. Pinecrest is a suburban town in Florida. Population, 18,000. Lush and green, it has become the go-to destination if you're a Miami fowl. Other neighbouring towns have become the target of property developers who are destroying the peacock's natural habitat, so the birds have clustered round the more sedate pine crest, and like a lot of the human residents there, the climate suits them. As Ron McGill from Zoo Miami says, when those animals get out here in south of Florida, they've entered the Club Med. This is paradise. 
and there lies the problem. The peacocks are overrunning the place. Residents have complained about the noise, the mess, and the damage the birds cause by scratching at roofs and indulging in their favourite pastime, pecking paint off cars. So the town council has come up with a plan. Just one male bird can impregnate up to 12 females, and pine crest vets have been called in to provide an old-fashioned and permanent solution in the form of vasectomies. Male peacocks will still be able to strut and show off their fantail splendour, but there won't be a population explosion afterwards. One detail in particular tickled by summer fancy. The reason male peacocks like to peck the cars is because of the shine on them. They see their reflection and think it's a competitor, and that they need to attack them. Is anyone else thinking that's a bit like a pointless cage fight fueled by Valency and Mashimo? I do hope Musk and Ellen have read this story too. Each to their own. The World Blind Games provided a cornucopia of opportunities for Dave to interview people and report on some of the sports. Here he immersed himself in the skills of blind participants in competitive judo. Hello, welcome to the International Blind Sports Association World Games at Birmingham University. And today it's judo I'm going along to see. I'm speaking to Natasha. Can you describe me what's going on, please? There seems to be three sets of opponents, two opponents. Yeah, yeah. so at the moment we've got three different weight groups on. We've got several weight groups through the day. Um, all they're trying to do is go through the rounds, try and get into the final. First person to throw their partner on their back wins the contest. Um, we've got two categories, J1 and J2. So those that are visually impaired or partially sighted, two different categories. One wears a white judo kit in the contest, or judogi, and the other one wears a blue one, so the audience can tell them apart. They start and finish by bowing low to each other, and then they grip each other's lapels and sleeves of their jackets. They then try to throw each other. If they do a nice clean throw, and they land on their backs, they win. If not, they grapple each other to the ground. If they hold an opponent down for 20 seconds, they win, and that's known as an Ippon. Natasha describes the British champion's fight. He's now holding his partner down, so could win this contest, but he got gold at the last Paralympics. Oh, wow, wow. Okay, and he pinned him down for more than 20 seconds. Yes, he has won an Ippon. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's just won. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Oh, good. I'm speaking to Mike, who's the referee. So, so what's it been like here? Very, very busy. Very enthusiastic players and coaches. A real good atmosphere and a real good couple of days so far. It's, uh, have you been, do you do judo yourself? Yeah, I've been doing judo for 40 years this year. I run my own club and I'm a referee, which is the reason I'm up here this weekend. Okay, are you a black belt? Yeah, I'm a fourth then. Right, hello. I'm speaking to a young gentleman. What's your name? 
and Nikolai Kronhaus. And where are you from? Germany. Okay, and, and are they taking part in the contest at the moment? Uh, not at the moment, yesterday I fought. Yes. Okay, so, so have you come to support them or to take part? Uh, yesterday I took part myself. Did and you? Today, wow! Yes, and today I uh, support my teammates. Oh, so how long have you been doing judo for? Uh, I guess almost 20 years. 20 years. What, what do you like about judo? Everything, almost. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a great sport. I, I, uh, I, it's it's hard to explain. There are so many uh, parts uh, which uh, fit together to judo. Yeah. So it's not uh, not about only strength or condition, yeah. but it's technique, technique. It's yeah. unique. It's so, yeah, and it's just fun. It's yeah. and it's a martial art. It's yes, it fun is. to fight and it is. Yeah. But it's a very suitable sport for blind people because it's a tactile sport. You're 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 in contact the whole yeah, time, aren't you? You, you? you don't have to. I don't miss something as an we are judo player in comparison to sighted judo players so it's almost the same sport it's not not like another uh, we eye sports you have to adapt the rules it's almost the same so, yeah. so you want you're fighting on equal terms for a sighted person when you do judo yes there's one difference we started uh, with a grip we already have our grip with the opponent and that's the only difference to sighted judo a small uh, movement <laughs> so, so can you tell me about the the, the kind of uh, well, the techniques of judo, basically in the Japanese terms. I used to do it when I was young. Uh, okay, it's hard to explain for for, for non uh, judo players, but it's but basically two two parts. It always starts in the in, in the um, while standing, and the main aim is to throw your opponent. And there are several techniques how you could throw the opponent. Yes. And then if it's going down to the ground, there uh, this is the second big part. There are some techniques to hold the opponent on the ground with his uh, with his back uh, f uh, uh, yes next to the ground so it's uh, there are also plenty of techniques in the ground yes yeah. and, okay. and you have to hold them down for more than 20 seconds for yeah, for 20 seconds yes yeah. and then you won okay or you throw him if you're standing and if you uh, manage to throw your opponent on, on his back then you have won the match it's like an, a KO so it's uh, yeah. then the fight is over if you score a point, it is called an Ippon, right? Yeah, it's called Ippon, yeah. It's like yeah. Ippon is you won the match. Yeah. And so your aim is to, to score an Ippon. Yeah. And Ippon means you, you throw your opponent on the, on the back. That's it. And not on the side, but on full on the back. And Nicholas uh, cheering on the German. Did, did the uh, a German contestant win? Uh, <laughs> yes, somehow yes. Uh, but uh, the fact is, I guess the, his opponent is, is from Korea, and he was probably injured because he uh, didn't want to fight. So he showed the referee he, he can't fight, and so the German player won the match without fighting. Okay, tell me about the age, <laughs> the age range for judo players. Yes, of course. So judo is also great because it's almost everybody could do judo. So a lot of small children starting doing judo, and here in this competition, most people are adults in between 20 and 30, something like that. A little younger, a little older. But even if you you, you are not uh, uh, fit enough anymore for competing on a high level, you don't have to quit with judo. You can continue in our training uh, groups. We have some people. Uh, 
over 60 years old still coming to training yeah. and so I think the oldest one who's training weekly with us is 67 I guess 68 yeah, okay. and he's still doing some some randery randery means like a sparring contest like sparring yeah. and boxing yeah. and doing some technique of course not like like an like an 20 year old but like a 67 old guy can do and he, he has fun and it's yeah. also for old people a nice sport yeah, yeah thank you very much you're welcome so that's Chris Kelly for Great Britain that's won the contest. Peter, a young lady now. Where's he, where you come from? My name's Tracy, and I'm from Wiltshire. Oh, Wiltshire. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. are you in, Do you do judo yourself? I used to years ago, and my daughter did judo. Um, we've got a friend that is visually impaired, and he's in the um, British judo. So we've come to support him today. So, how's he doing? He's doing well. His name's Evan Malloy, and he yeah. fights out of devices and Bath Judo Club, and uh, he's won his first. Um, fight, so he's next through to the next round. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great sport for visually impaired people, isn't it? Tactile. Yeah, very tactile, and um, just amazing, really, how um, the, the skill is no different from any of the other judo players. It's still as brutal as uh, <laughs> if you're blind or if you're partially sighted, and then it is if you uh, have full vision. <laughs> yeah, I was told judo was called the gentle art. <laughs> Not much to be gentle about it, especially with Evan, because he's full on. <laughs> And he's doing well then. Yeah, he's, he's doing, doing very well. well yeah. Excellent. That's great. Through to the next round, so hopefully he'll go through and win his next bout, and then um, hopefully get selected for the uh, Olympics in Paris. Wow, so that's where they progress to yeah. from here. Yeah, a lot of the judoka here will be selected and then go through to um, the visually impaired Olympics, which is going to be held in Paris. Well, look out for him. What's his yeah. name again? Evan Malloy. Evan Malloy, yeah. okay. That was lovely. Thank you, Tracy. I'm, I'm glad it came. Thank you. <laughs> Well, that's all from the judo at the International Blind Sports Association in Birmingham, the World Games. Bye for now. Dave's report on judo at the World Blind Games brings this week's programme to a close. So from the team and me, Peter Walters, it's goodbye till next week.